Lantern here, and I'm very glad to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Let me start with a question. How many people here like to go camping? I find this is a question, you know, it gets two different responses. Some of you are probably thinking, why would I spend my recreational time depriving myself of the comforts of modern life? And I can see some others of you are like, yeah, let's go. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was involved in Civil Air Patrol, a cadet program, where we did wilderness activities. It wasn't really camping. We didn't bring a tent. Just We often didn't bring food, just a knife, some rope, and us out in the Manzanita scrub figuring out how to survive. And I really, I think I enjoyed it because it was a challenge. It was a way to test myself. What I'm getting at is that the wilderness is a place of testing. As we've been going through David's life, last Sunday Ryan preached about this moment where David is driven out by Saul, out into the wilderness. And this is going to be the next phase of David's life, in the wilderness trying to escape from Saul. And we're going to see that it's a place of testing for David. So with that in mind, let's turn to our text keeping in mind that, Saul, that David is on the run and Saul is chasing him. 1 Samuel 24, I'll read the whole chapter. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Ein Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hands against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hands. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, 
Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this passage by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what you mean for us to hear in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So David is on the run in the wilderness, and he meets Saul in the cave. As we look at this passage, I want us to see three points. Point number one, David is tested. Point number two, Saul is tested. And point number three, Jesus is tested. So we're going to look at how David is tested, how Saul is tested, and how Jesus is tested. Okay, so the first point, David is tested. Let me start with a note about the setting. David is in Ein Gedi, uh, a name that means the spring of the kid goat beside the Dead Sea. And in some ways, this is David's natural setting. We have this mention of goats and sheep folds, and it reminds us that David is a shepherd. He's used to being in the wilderness with the animals. But now David is one of the animals. As he says in verse 11, Saul is hunting for him. And we heard the psalm that David wrote on this occasion in our Old Testament reading. Notice the themes of being prey that's being chased by lions or being caught in a trap. David is like one of these mountain goats, climbing up the hills and the sheer mountainsides to remote fortresses, hiding in caves to avoid predators. Saul, meanwhile, like, like many kings in the ancient world, is obsessed with the hunt. It's, it's hard not to get the impression that this is a distraction from his day job of fighting the Philistines. And we, we have that note that Saul was fighting the Philistines at the beginning, but it's passed over so briefly. And here he is, he hears that David's holed up in Ein Gedi, and he rushes off. But by the way, that's the opposite direction from the coastal plain, where the Philistines are. Now David has faced enemies before, right? He has faced the lion and the bear when he was protecting his father's flocks. He's squared off against a Goliath and killed the giant. 
He's led Israel's forces against the Philistines. But this enemy is different. This enemy is the king of Israel, God's anointed. This is a man whom David had fought alongside. This is a man with whom he's broken bread. This is a man with whose son he's entered into a lifelong covenant. This is a man whose daughter he has married. This is a man that David loves like a father, who he's watched slip into paranoia, swinging back and forth between words of affection and murderous rage. David loves Saul, but also Saul is the enemy who's ruined his life. So although the wilderness might seem like home turf for David the shepherd, over the last few chapters it's been an immense trial, full of hardship and grief. You know, in a way, David is reliving the story of Israel, just as his ancestors were brought out by God into the wilderness. Uh, David is being tried and tested, but also just like his ancestors in the wilderness, the wilderness is going to be a place where David can meet God. And we owe some of the most important psalms that David writes, uh, the experience of his dependence upon God to this time in the wilderness. Now, at this point of the story, David has already been through several cycles of this pursuit. He'll find a place and get set up, but no sooner is he set up than Saul hears about it and pursues him, and David has to move and start all over again. But this time, the tables are turned. You know, Saul takes a break from trekking through the steep terrain because, well, he needs to go to the bathroom. And, and while it's nice to have 3,000 chosen men with you when you go David hunting, uh, you might want a little privacy for some things. So leaves the 3,000 outside, and he finds a cave where he can go to answer nature's call. Wouldn't you know it, he chooses David's hideout. David's men are ecstatic. This is what they've been waiting for. Here's Saul alone in a rather vulnerable position. Um, Surely this is the hand of God. They say to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. We're not sure exactly when this prophecy of the Lord was given to David exactly, although it sounds a lot like something Jonathan says back in, verse, in chapter 20. Do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan and David's men seem to be on the same page. God has given David a promise that he is going to cut off his enemies. And David's men, just like Anybody at a Bible study are very eager to apply the Word of God to their concrete situation. But keep in mind, just because you can quote a Bible verse doesn't mean that you can apply it correctly. In any case, David does sneak out of his hiding place. He finds Saul's robe. The word here is for an outer robe, by the way. Um, 
not to be crass, but one imagines that Saul is engaging in a more involved act of waste elimination. And so perhaps we're supposed to imagine that he takes off his coat and, and leaves it there so he'll be a little more comfortable. And maybe that explains why David can access it without Saul noticing. But how, however that may be, David has access to the rope and he cuts the corner off the robe. And then David feels guilty. Verse 5 says that his heart struck him. This has puzzled some commentators. Um, all David do has done is cut Saul's robe. Um, and later on, he's going to hold it up as evidence of his, his goodwill towards Saul, that he only cut his robe. So why does David feel guilty now? I think to answer this, we need to understand a little bit about the symbolism of the action. You see, we had a very similar scene with a robe all the way back in chapter 15. Back then, the prophet Samuel had just told Saul that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him because of his disobedience. Saul, desperate to change God's mind, reaches out to grab the departing Samuel and grabs his robe, but the robe rips. And Samuel says this is a sign that God is going to rip the kingdom away from Saul. You know, we might see Saul's attempt to grasp the kingdom as a window into his entire character. God, God has told him he may not keep the kingdom, that God is going to choose a new king. But rather than accepting God's decision... Saul is willing to attack and even kill those dear to him in order to hold on to his power. What a contrast with Jonathan, as we saw last week, that when Jonathan sees David, he takes off his robe and puts it on David. Jonathan seems willing to give up the kingdom, much to his father's great annoyance, by the way. He doesn't grasp the kingdom, but freely gives it up when he recognizes that the Lord has anointed David. So if that's what the robe tells us about Saul and Jonathan, what does this episode with the robe tell us about David here? I think it, realized, I think it reveals that there's a little bit of Saul in David's heart at this moment. It reveals that there's a desire in his heart to take the kingdom. See, I think people get confused about this passage because they think what happens later is David's plan all along. Like, his intention is, I'm going to cut the robe, let Saul go, and use it to prove his innocence. But I don't think that's right. You see, David doesn't actually rule out killing Saul until after he cuts the robe, and then he goes and rebukes his men. You know, if it was David rebukes his men and then cuts the robe, then it would seem like he's planned it all along. But I think in this instant, David has still left the option of killing Saul open. You see, gashing the robe might just be the first cut. Maybe in itself, it's just a symbolic action. But it might say all the more, precisely because it's so symbolic. We could make an analogy from virtual reality. Uh, Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek argues that who we are in virtual reality when we're playing video games or surfing the internet anonymously is actually the real us. You know, we think we go to the virtual world to escape reality and create a fake version of ourselves. 
But Zizek argues the self that we make there is actually perhaps more real than who we are in quote-unquote real life. How can this be so? Well, it's because in the virtual world, we are free to act out our desires without the usual restraints that the outside world might give us. And so, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but who you are online is the real you. And I think that's how it is with Saul's robe. It allows David to symbolically act out his violent desire and therefore reveals it to him. In this symbolic symbolic act, David discovers a desire for vengeance, a desire to take what is rightfully his by force. But here's where the resemblance to Saul ends. David immediately feels guilty about it. His heart strikes him. And David's heart is important. Earlier in the book of Samuel, God has said that he's going to find a king after his own heart. And he tells Samuel when he's trying to find David that God looks on the heart and he's going to choose this new leader based on his heart. So now that this passage is telling us about David's heart, we better pay attention. What are we being told about David's heart? Well, it turns out that what's special about David's heart is not that there is no violence or aggression or vengeance in his heart. I mean, that's understandable, actually. I think I would be a pretty angry person if I was in David's sandals. It makes sense that there are some dark things going on in David's heart with everything he's been through. What's special about David's heart is that he has a conscience. Saul, on the other hand, when he is confronted with this disobedience in chapter 15, well, what does he do? He lies about it, he makes excuses, he blames other people. This is the big difference between David and Saul. David recognizes the sin in his own heart and deals with it, but Saul refuses to do so. So David is tempted, but ultimately he passes the test. As verse 7 says, he persuaded his men not to attack Saul. Actually, persuade is a little weak for the Hebrew. I think I'd say he chewed them out. They seemed really pious, quoting God's prophecy to him, but actually they were tempting him to evil. David, though, is able to understand God's heart enough to know what God actually wants him to do. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David's articulating a very important moral principle here. Even if God is going to take away the kingdom from Saul, even if he has promised it to David, Saul is still God's anointed right now, and David is not justified in taking the kingdom by force. He has to wait for a legitimate opportunity. It may have seemed like David got a ticket out of the wilderness, but he knows that he needs to stay in the wilderness and do this God's way because the ends don't justify the means. And fundamentally, the right to avenge is is not something that belongs to him. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And again, in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
David recognizes that God is judge. And as Saul himself acknowledges, David pays back good for evil. Even though David has been grievously wronged, even though he is in the right, he doesn't seek to take justice into his own hands, but waits for God to bring justice. These words of David may remind you of others you have heard before. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These are Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 30, 43 to 44. What's remarkable about David is that he's learned the lesson of the Sermon on the Mount a thousand years before it was ever preached. In this moment in the wilderness of En Gedi, David embodies the teachings of Jesus in advance. Rather than giving in to temptation to take revenge, he entrusts his cause to God and has faith in God to vindicate his servant. So David passes the test. But before we move on from this point, let, let's not miss what God is doing in this passage. You know, David, David never actually denies that God is the one who has brought him into this situation. Both David's men, David and Saul, all affirm that God has put Saul into David's hands. Now, the Bible does tell us that God himself doesn't tempt anyone. God doesn't encourage us towards sin. And yet, God may bring us into times of trial and testing. God is working with David in these wilderness chapters, shaping him into the leader he wants him to be. This test doesn't just reveal who David is. It also is molding and shaping him. God has his purposes for this testing of David in the wilderness. Okay, so that's the first point. David is tested. Second point, Saul is tested. Saul has been confronted with his guilt in a truly theatrical fashion. You know, it was one thing for Jonathan to tell him he was being paranoid about David, but now he's been publicly shown up. David has proven beyond a doubt that he has no intention to betray Saul. Here we have David bowing to the grounds, pleading with him, calling him my father, trying to reason with him. Verse 9, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? By the way, we, we actually haven't seen any of these accusers in the story so far. Uh, the delusion about David's betrayal, it seems to be really down to Saul himself. I'm not sure if David can't bring himself to believe this, or if this is a little bit more diplomatic. It gives Saul a face-saving option. You know, this is how monarchies tend to work. You can be like, I bl blame a cabinet member and fire them for something that's really your fault. So maybe David is giving Saul a face-saving out here. Um, Either way, David tries to make himself as unthreatening as possible. He's a hunted animal, but not the dangerous kind like a lion or a cape buffalo. David is a dead dog or a flea. And he approaches the matter by quoting an ancient proverb, out of the wicked comes wickedness. That might sound a little bit like, duh, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But the point of the proverb is our actions come from who we are. That there's no room for the excuse well, look, I know I did this wicked thing, but that wasn't really me. David is inviting Saul to think about how their respective actions reflect upon their characters. So how does Saul respond to all of this? Well, initially, it looks very promising. 
Almost like one waking from a dream, Saul says, is this your voice, my son David? If you remember, the beginning of Saul and David's story together actually involved the fact that as Saul turns away from God and turns towards darkness, um, he begins to be periodically possessed by this evil spirit. And the only one who's able to kind of break that spell is David. And, you know, Saul's words here make me sound like David maybe still has some of that power. It's like Saul is waking up from a dream and hearing David's voice. And for the moment, he seems to recognize who David is and the tragedy of the situation that they're in. And he breaks down weeping. Then he acknowledges, you are more righteous than I. These words echo my favorite Bible story, which is the story of Judah and Tamar. Um, It might seem like a strange one to pick, but it's this moment for Judah of moral recognition, where he says to Tamar, you are more righteous than I. And it's so powerful. Judah recognizes his own hypocrisy, and it's the turning point in his story where God takes him to be a great self-sacrificial leader. Well, Saul is echoing the same words. And we find David, Saul even acknowledging that God will reward David for his goodness and that David is certainly going to have the kingdom. Saul also asked David to swear that he won't kill his family, which does seem a little rich given the circumstances. But David's very happy to do that. So, is this the moment of truth for Saul? Is this the turning point in his character arc? Is this true repentance that's going to lead to a changed life for Saul? Well, you know, I don't want to spoil it too much, but um, notice at least how our story ends. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And David's willing to forgive Saul, but that doesn't mean he trusts him enough to go home with him. Notice, by the way, that, that real forgiveness doesn't always mean that trust is immediately restored or that relationships can just go back to the way they were before. In any case, David's decision here turns out to be a wise one. Not two chapters later, we're going to see Saul hunting David yet again. All the words and weeping of Saul here turn out to be hollow. You know, I, I don't know that Saul is faking it, that like he's not actually feeling the emotions he's expressing, but Saul doesn't have the character to show consistency in his response to David. His soul is unstable and changeable. That's part of his character. One moment he's saying how much he loves you, the next moment he's throwing his spear at you. So Saul can have this big, emotionally loaded moment, but there's no real deep heart change. Ultimately, there's no tender conscience that goes along with these emotions. Saul's heart is not going to strike him next time he feels anger or jealousy towards David. Saul here is the quintessential example of a false repentance, someone who puts on a big show of religious sorrow but doesn't actually have the reality that goes with it. And brothers and sisters, there's a warning here for us this morning. What might the Spirit of God be saying to you from this passage this morning? Is he bringing you to any conviction of your sin? Is he showing you something in your heart that needs to be dealt with? 
If so, then you're presented with two ways of, of dealing with that in this passage here. One is the way of David, to fight against your sin and repent of it. The other is the way of Saul, to make a big outward show, but not to commit to a war on sin. Saul gets so many opportunities for repentance, but he stays on that downward spiral. Perhaps this morning God is giving you the opportunity to hear his word, the opportunity to be convicted by the Spirit and have your heart softened. So that's the second main point. Saul is tested. And ultimately, he fails the test. Third point, Jesus is tested. Perhaps you've already noticed some of the parallels between David's story and Jesus' story. Ryan mentioned last week that, you know, David is anointed and receives the Spirit, but then he's immediately driven out into the wilderness. And if you read the Gospels, the same thing happens with Jesus. No sooner has Jesus been uh, anointed with the Spirit in his baptism than the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And if you're reading the Gospel of Mark, it even has the animals, just like our passage. Jesus is in the wilderness with the wild animals, just like David. And like David, Jesus must be tested in the wilderness. Satan shows up with Bible verses carefully misapplied to trip Jesus up. Remember, God's word misapplied can be dangerous. But Jesus understands the true meaning of God's word and is not fooled. So finally, Satan takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, and says, all this can be yours if you will only fall down and worship me. Do you understand this temptation? Jesus has already been promised the kingdoms of the world. But what Satan is saying is, here's a shortcut. You can have the kingdom now if you will just bend the knee. But Jesus rebukes him. He will not take the shortcut. He's going to follow God's call, God's path to the kingdom. And the devil leaves, although Luke says the devil leaves only until an opportune time. What is that time? What's the time when the devil comes back to tempt Jesus again? I think one suggestion could be this moment after Jesus' transfiguration, when he has been transfigured with light. And this is the moment in Jesus' ministry when he, he starts telling his disciples that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and only after that is he going to be raised to glory. And Peter doesn't like that. Peter always very outspoken, but he's like, that doesn't fit with my theology, Jesus. And so he starts to correct Jesus, say, no, no, you're not going to have to die, you're not going to have to suffer. And Jesus, but Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You have set your mind on human things, not the things of God. Why is Jesus calling Peter Satan? He's one of his closest disciples. It's because in that moment, Peter has allowed Satan to use him as a temptation, much like David's men in our passage today. Again, notice the point of Satan's temptation of Jesus. It comes in right at the point where Jesus is committing himself to suffering and death in obedience to his Father. No, Satan says to Peter, you don't need to suffer in order to receive the kingdom. But Jesus passes 
the test. Even more than David has done, Jesus doesn't even have this moment where his heart desires vengeance. Rather, Jesus remains committed to this path of suffering, the path of responding to evil with good all the way to the cross. What an awful revenge Jesus could have called down on those who falsely convicted him, who mocked and spit at him, who nailed him to the cross. But as 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus also did not repay evil for evil, but he paid a much dearer price than David ever did for that truth. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're like David. Your heart has been striking you. You know the depth of your sin. You know that there's darkness inside. Maybe you're here this morning and you're more like Saul. God's trying to show you something in your heart, but you don't want to hear it. Whether you're David or Saul this morning, what you really need is Jesus. Jesus passes the test that none of us can. He obeys perfectly for us and in our place. Because he was condemned, we can be forgiven. Because he was broken, we can be healed. At the cross, we meet God's strange justice where Jesus triumphs by losing and he defeats his enemies by dying for them. And each of us is invited to the foot of that cross today with our hearts as in need of healing as they are to lay down our sins and be raised up to a life that shows that forgiveness to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greater David, Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his death on our behalf. We pray that we would be moved by the love of Christ. We pray that you would give us a heart like Jesus' heart. We pray that you would bring us back to Jesus in repentance for our sin. Give us soft hearts that listen to your Spirit's words. And we pray that you would raise us up again. Change us. Help us to repent of our sin and live in a way that is merciful towards others with the mercy that we've been shown. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.